Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Today, I'm privileged to have Andy Anderson, a seasoned expert in respiratory diseases, particularly COPD. Andy's journey is not just professional, it's deeply personal. From battling severe asthma since childhood to experiencing the impact of respiratory disorders within his family, Andy's life story is intertwined with his career. His intimate understanding of respiratory diseases has fueled his passion for advancing healthcare in this field. In this episode, we will explore Andy's trajectory from his early days at 3M, known for its pioneering work in metered dose inhalers, through various roles in global pharma giants, where he spearheaded innovative treatments for respiratory conditions. He also contrasts work-life balance and cultural nuances between Europe and US, imparting valuable insights and advice to the next generation of healthcare professionals. Join us as Andy shares his insights on the complexities of COPD, his approach to healthcare innovation and how his personal experiences have shaped his professional path. Hi everyone, this is the next episode of Care Captains. Today I'm delighted to have Andy Anderson on the call. Hey Andy, how are you today? Hey, I'm I'm great, Norbert. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Andy. And you know, always when we talked in the past, I um I recall your career as a person who always worked in respiratory diseases and these days in COPD. Was that a conscious move that you covered respiratory diseases? What's your story, Andy? You know, it's interesting. I don't know that it was necessarily conscious. I can tell you I had a natural affinity to the respiratory side of the business because from a personal perspective, I suffer from severe asthma. And in fact, I was hospitalized when I was as a child in kindergarten. I, I spent the um, entirety of a week in a hospital under an oxygen tent because of an asthma attack. And it was really the first time I'd ever been left alone. They couldn't stay the whole night in the hospital with me. So from that time period on, my asthma kind of fluctuated between, you know, mild, moderate, and then uh, it went away for a little bit and then ultimately came back. So I'm actually a patient on, on a biologic product my, myself for the treatment of severe asthma. That is, is what really kind of kept me in this space. I will say that about 50% of, of asthma is genetically acquired. So the fact that my father had severe asthma and also my mother, um, my sisters have it as well to a varying degree. One of them is also a severe asthmatic. And she almost died in my arms after an anaphylactic attack. If you have those types of kind of real world situations happen to you, really causes you to think and causes you to think about how you want to contribute, at least uh, for me, contribute in the world. And I guess when I met you when we were in, in Switzerland, Yes, this is after I had moved on to an, another company, but my my father actually ended up dying from a severe asthma attack. So again, uh, reasons to stay in this this field were were deeply personal to me. Thank thank you, Andy, for sharing that with the audience. I I wasn't really aware that it's really in your family, and 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 unfortunately, your your dad passed away. 
how do you deal with the disease these days? How do you manage it? How do you keep it under control? And on one hand, of course, you are a patient, as you mentioned, and you also working in the field in COPD. So how is this kind of like two part of the of the equation in your daily life? Yeah. So how do I keep it under control? I I I'm impacted by the symptomology every day. So, you know, for me, my asthma tends to manifest in kind of viscous mucus plugs. So the just the nuisance of having to deal with, with that and trying to to expectorate that from from your lungs so that you don't feel I guess it would be almost like a a tickle or something that's just prohibiting you from from getting a a full breath, right? You you just can't breathe you can't breathe out. So I take my inhalers religiously and then of course I'm I'm on a biologic that I take religiously as well because if I if I'm not compliant, I will end up in in a place where don't want to be potentially going to the emergency room or having to deal with inflammation, the chronic inflammation with oral steroids, which have significant side effects, even if you only take them even in a burst, like once a year even. Staying on respiratory disease, you mentioned that maybe there are some genetic factors you said that... um your mom, your sister, your dad um, were and are having um, asthma as well. Are you aware of any specific genetic test which potentially can help you maybe early on diagnosing, prognosing the disease? You know, that's interesting. I think that's one of the holy grails. I know a lot of the thought leaders from around the world that are in genetics and constantly looking. And unfortunately, at this point, we really don't have a biomarker that even from a genetic profiling perspective that is is easily identified as as contributing to to asthma so you know i think there's certainly hope with the advent of artificial intelligence and unlocking dna and genetic profiles so you know there's always hope and promise for future advancements where we are able to kind of predict those individuals that asthma will will progress and i think the holy grail is is obviously intervening earlier so that your lungs don't have what we call airway remodeling through that the constant insult of chronic inflammation it can ultimately scar your lungs right so it almost remodels your lung and makes it more fibrotic so less able if you will to transfer oxygen into your your bloodstream when I prepared for this interview, I was reading about Serpina 1, which I understood correctly. This is a gene, and there is a test is AATD alpha 1 antitrypsin, if I read it correctly. Yes. But this is in COPD space. So maybe maybe there is a little bit of hope in, in COPD. And are you more familiar with this AATD testing, Annie? Yes, I, yes, I am. So alpha 1 antitrypsin is deficiency, is something that's a very rare disease. It is considered within the umbrella term of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD as we know it. COPD on a whole is is really not a great definition in my mind because COPD encompasses a lot of other disease states, including emphysema, cystic fibrosis, if you will, alpha-1 antitrypsin disorder, chronic bronchitis. 
So there's there's all sorts of subcategories to to COPD. So thought leaders that are developing a lot of the strategic guidances are trying to work towards, but overcoming an established lexicon is is very tough. I think what you're getting at, though, is is really around the concept of personalized medicine, and the the companies that I think that are on the cutting edge are ones that are are trying to profile the the right patient types and look for the specific endotypes that would be more amenable to a, a pharmaceutical product working. So, in a way. A companion diagnostic, but not necessarily. A companion diagnostic meaning tied to one drug. I think at this point, for example, eosinophils, high eosinophil levels, anything over 300 is considered to be what specialists say is type 2 inflammation. With that, if, if a patient presents themselves with symptoms and then a physician does a CBC with diff, and these blood cells are showing eosinophil levels of 300 and above, they're able to treat it with a number of the biologic agents that are out there, the interleukin-5s, the interleukin-4-13s, and to another extent, even the anti-IgE products that are out there. Those give you a greater chance of success based based on the data. So I think that in a way, is a a step towards more personalized medicine or more precision medicine. Correct. You read my mind that this was the point that I'm aiming at, and you already nicely answered that one. But maybe we are taking a step back and coming back to the the previous... Summary: What you just said that COPD is a is an umbrella term for for many other diseases as well. So, so, so what makes it difficult to diagnose and treat these diseases? So this is actually very very interesting because the symptomology between asthma and COPD is very similar, and in fact, I would say there are way more similarities than, than differences. So the primary difference between asthma and COPD: asthma is thought to be largely reversible. So in other words, if you treat with a bronchodilator, inhaled steroids, you can reverse the bronchoconstriction and inflammation back to, to normal. Whereas with COPD, because of the, the environment that you were exposed to or your lungs were exposed to either by your own doing, i.e. smoking, or if you happen to work in a factory where you were exposed to hazardous chemicals or other types of pollutants that would cause a chronic inflammatory process that will ultimately destroy your lungs. The net with COPD is that you'll never get that lung function back. It always, always deteriorates. And you have this never-ending cycle of inflammation, exacerbation, it in your mind. It's, it's almost like uh, creating a snowman. It starts with that one small snowball and it keeps rolling. And that's that cycle of inflammation and exacerbation just continues. The more exacerbations you have, it just leads to future more exacerbations. And it's so scary with, with COPD. This is data from a large Canadian study that showed that once you're hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation, you literally have a 50% chance of dying within the next five years, which is is just striking. So you may not know this, but COPD is actually 
the third leading cause of mortality in the entire world. I wasn't aware that it's really on the top three of, of these high burden of diseases. And speaking of which, I think November is the month of COPD awareness. And I think you recently joined a COPD for life campaign. What are you hoping to achieve with this campaign? Why did you join this, Andy? It's pretty sad when you think about this, Norbert. So despite being the third leading cause of mortality in the world, it has one of the lowest funding from, from any other disease state in terms of, for example, in the United States, what the National Institutes of Health will put towards conducting research. Currently working on a molecule, for example, that is going to be the first real innovation in over a decade. It's pretty scary that there hasn't been any innovation. And I, and I think the, the purpose beyond, behind me joining that cause is to raise awareness of, of the, the massive unmet need, draw attention to it so that we can secure more research funding and, and support. Why do you think that there, there is relatively low awareness, relatively low funding? Now, this is an N of one, but I would say that there's, there's a lot of stigma behind COPD because the majority of COPD is considered to be self-inflicted, i.e., you know, you, you brought it upon yourself by, by smoking 40 packs, a pack a day for 40 years, right? Despite like the, the Surgeon General's warnings on the outside of the the cigarette boxes. So that may be one one reason. You know, you you brought it upon yourself. So why why should we spend money doing something that you know you yourself were were largely responsible for? Now again, that's that's just one side of the coin. Very sad about the the individuals that are, are working in you know factories, maybe in in third world countries that are exposed to to toxins that. We're now getting this from from just because they're they're trying to make a living. So the reality is though in, in the US, I don't thanks to the EPA and others, we we don't have nearly as much of, of the COPD that's generated from from that type of exposure. You mentioned that you are working on a, a novel agent which is a real innovation in the last 10 years, uh, which is launching soon. Uh, what can you tell about the, the mechanism of action of, of this drug? How is it going to treat patients differently? It's interesting. So the the drug that's about to, to be launched is IL-4, IL-13 blocker. And that works in, in a different way. In fact, it blocks uh, interleukin-13, which is responsible for increased mucus production, which is a big component of one factor of COPD. In fact, David Singh, one of the, the top pulmonologists out of the United Kingdom, the way he describes chronic bronchitis is, is very simple. On one slide, he writes, chronic bronchitis equals mucus. So if you can reduce that, that mucus production in, uh, by, by blocking IL-13, that, that's a win. It also relaxes airway smooth muscle. So a combination of those two factors allows people to, to breathe better and faster. By blocking two different pathways, the IL-4 actually works by inhibiting mast cells. So you don't get that increase in, in IgE and other type 2 inflammatory type markers. Up until very recently, scientists felt that 
COPD was largely caused by neutrophilic inflammation. And with the, the publication of the Boreas trial within the New England Journal of Medicine, it really flipped that understanding on its head. So it's really, really cutting edge in, in insight into a different inflammatory process that than most physicians were, were trained on. In COVID-19 times, I, I felt that there were quite many novel digital solutions in the respiratory field, remote uh, diagnosis, uh, you cough in an iPhone, and then uh, maybe diagnosis COVID or maybe a respiratory tract infection. What's your take on these various novel digital solutions, especially in your field? I mean, thus far, I've not seen anything that is digital from a respiratory perspective that is setting my world on fire. That said, it's kind of funny. We just hired an individual that their whole job will be to to source technology and determine whether or not we should be moving forward in any capacity of, of investing or, or partnering with companies. I know Merck, for example, has an app that you can download onto your iPhone or, or, or Android device and measures how many times you've coughed during a day. Because, you know, coming from a patient's perspective with somebody that has asthma, don't realize how often you're coughing. And I think there's, there's a lot of promise, Norbert. Recently, a thought leader heard, um, about a, a technology, it was a wearable that like listened to your lungs and was able through artificial intelligence to to predict whether or not you were were going to be uh, potentially having a exacerbation. There's a lot to come. Definitely, it's it's good that I think you look into it. You have been working on many different um, drug and and uh, diagnostics launches in your career. What do you think? What what makes difficult to, to launch or challenging uh, to launch uh, novel treatments, novel diagnostic tests. You know the industry inside out. Uh, you have been working in US, you have been working in Europe as well. I think it's it's a couple of things. One, anytime you're an innovator and you're you're coming out with, with molecules that people have, have never seen, like um, when I worked on Zolar, for example, it was the first anti-IgE molecule in the world. So while people understood it, the allergists and immunologists understood it, they were happier to, to, to adopt it from a scientific standpoint. But then you have what, what I would ultimately describe as the hassle factor. So how do, we, how do we get this? It's different than going to your local pharmacy. If you live in the United States, your physician writing you a prescription. These are expensive medications that require prior approval. So what does that do? It just put increased burden on the physician and their staffs. It's a technique that the insurance payers use to limit the uptake of expensive products because the amount of paperwork can be onerous. So it's a deterrent. So it's a combination of increasing the scientific understanding from, from zero to a thousand. And then there's the ultimately what I would describe as just the access piece. Coming back to your current challenges, you are in, in launch phase. What keeps you busy these days, Andy? What are these challenges, what you are trying to solve? For me, what keeps me up at night is 
With respect to individuals that have acquired COPD, in the U.S., we have a system called Medicare, and it's the healthcare system in which most retired people are on. So it's a it's a government pay, and the benefits are not. I don't know if they're as good as as living in in Europe, frankly. So there's a lot of out of pocket cost for a patient to acquire expensive biologics. So I think that is is a, a fundamental challenge in a population that is, is going to be one of one of, one of my largest. I'm thinking um, of your role in general, what does a, a marketing lead do? As as a brand head, I I love the variety. So I'll go anywhere from you know working with the forecasting team to to develop the yearly and, and obviously the, the long-term forecast, working with finance around uh, operating expenses, uh, reviewing the, the business operating income projections, to diving into the weeds with the value and access team, to coaching my team and focusing them on the priorities that are, are going to be critical launch success factors and really, really focusing the team on on doing the high value items because you can do a lot, but I'd rather the team really be focused on the three core deliverables that will, again, move the business the, the furthest and the fastest. I'm pretty sure you are having many meetings every day and maybe in COVID times, it was even worse via Zoom. How, how did COVID-19 working remotely impacted your job? How are you keeping up with these many, many meetings and orchestrating so many stakeholders to make sure that you will have a successful launch? It ultimately requires ruthless prioritization. I myself, if I'm not contributing to a meeting, I will, will leave it halfway. I don't feel obligated to stay in, in any meeting. Um, I will say my dues. I'll try to get to providing the, my my point of view, or ultimately, if I'm not able to stay the, the whole time, I trust that the team will circle back with me to to provide any additional insights that we need to make decisions upon. And ultimately, it's it's about prioritization and and key communication links with with my management team to understand what their priorities are as well. And uh, speaking of which, that you have been working for many different uh, companies in the industry. So how do these companies uh, differ from each other in general, from the decision-making, from the operations perspective? Yeah, so I would say probably um, one of the cultures that and operating ways that I appreciated the most was at Genentech. They had a, an operating model in which decisions were pushed down to the individuals that were the subject matter expertise with the strongest subject matter expertise. I think that that is, is something that every organization should strive for. High-level decision-making should be left to, to the, the projects that require the absolute most risk. And the majority of the time, you know, we don't have a whole lot of super risky decisions, right? So it's, I think it's incumbent upon more efficient organizations to, to push the decision making down to the lowest level possible, the, the folks that are the true subject matter experts and leave the, the real risky 
thought, thoughtful risk-taking, if you will, to executive management. Novartis, for example, and, and to a, a separate degree, uh, you know, some of the companies that, that we used to work for, Global plays say a very strong role in terms of setting the overall strategy and then the, the affiliates kind of localizing it to fit the, the, the local marketplace needs. You're, you're one of the most positive person who I met with who is always smiling and um, always has a very positive can-do attitude. How do you do this, Sandy? What, what's, what's your secret? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just... I feel like if you focus on the positive, it's a, it's a force multiplier to the people that are around you. It comes naturally. Maybe I was raised that way. <laughs> but it, There's no secret sauce. No, no all, secret. All I know is that it makes a difference when you, you go into work with a positive attitude versus a fetist one. And I'm pretty sure it brings a lot of positive energy to the team since you need to orchestrate a launch uh, you are the brand uh, ceo I'm, I'm pretty sure colleagues appreciate it i realized that we jumped over your career trajectory usually i like starting with this one and i was really surprised to see that you started at 3m if i'm not mistaken it was the minnesota mining manufacturing or maybe that was the the original abbreviation of the company what brought you to the industry 3m uh, is mostly known for post-it notes so those little sticky things that everybody has everywhere so one of the world's largest companies and it's a manufacturing company that actually also had a small pharmaceutical unit in fact, they bought a company called Riker, and Riker Labs was the lab that developed the first meter dose inhaler. And in fact, 3M as a whole is one of the world's largest meter dose inhaler makers for Glaxo, Novartis, Boehringer, Ingelheim, you name it. They make and manufacture the majority of the world's meter dose inhalers for asthmatics, COBDers, etc. So they had a small pharma company and they had a drug called Maxair Autohaler and Maxair was a short-acting bronchodilator. So, you know, getting out of college, being a pharmaceutical sales representative was one of the best jobs you could get. And I was lucky enough to have someone uh, take a risk on a kid out of college. So I cut my teeth in the, the sales world and then ultimately worked up into uh, what we call the hospital representative. So these are individuals that would call on, on local hospitals, which also in many cases had training departments. So I found myself working with some of the, the top respiratory specialists in the United States just by function of the accounts that I had. And ultimately, some of these people became known as you know worldwide thought leaders so that's how i ended up in, in the respiratory space and then ultimately moved into marketing role and have stayed in in marketings and or sales management ever since carrying the bag wasn't for sure an easy job and i'm pretty sure you got many many no's what kept you moving when you were in this sales job andy i think it's it's really focus so where focus goes energy flows and if you really 
focus on the right customers with the right frequency, the right message, you'll ultimately win the war, if you will. You know, each day is battle. But just because you lose a battle doesn't mean you'll you'll ultimately lose the war. So it, for me, it was about targeting and then ultimately learning. We have a saying in the US, either fish or cut bait. At some point, point X, you need to make a, a goal. You're either going to turn that individual around or not. And if it's the not, then you can free up your time to, to get to other more high value customers and go to your your key customers that are already adopting, ask them why they're adopting. And customers, in many cases, your best ones, are gonna be some of your your best insights to to help you sell to to the more difficult customer. And I think uh, it's getting more and more difficult to talk about pharmaceuticals, to bring um, uh, drugs and uh, detail them. How do you see the sales role evolving what are the challenges what the sales reps are dealing these days? Good. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's a tough world out there. In some some cases, the hospitals don't even allow sales representatives in the building anymore. So they have to meet physicians outside in the cafeteria or you know out in the in the courtyard. I think the the evolving role of sales rep will be one of overall customer service really not only understanding the benefits of your your company's drugs, but also ultimately how do you facilitate access and make it super easy for the physician, any healthcare provider, and ultimately the patient. And uh, from 3M, you moved over, I think, first to Genentech, then you came over to to Europe. Roche, then if I'm not mistaken, you went to Astra and then now uh, you are at um, Sanofi. So what were the major drivers behind these carrier moves? How did you chose uh, these roles and these challenges in your career, Andy? The, the way I did it was I always went to the therapy that I thought was going to be cutting edge, that develop, that had the strongest value proposition. So in my career, I did have a setback in that I was working on lebrikizumab for for Roche when when you and I met. Uh, I was on the pharma side, and then ultimately went to the companion diagnostic side to support that molecule. So as you know, it it didn't pan out in asthma, and the other molecule that was being developed was an interleukin-5 molecule, and it had really, really great data. So that's what caused me to to make the jump to to AstraZeneca. In the meantime, while I'm about to, while I'm launching like Facenra in uh, asthma and uh, working primarily in a global capacity with an extra special focus on the U.S. business. There was another drug that was being developed in the U.S., and that drug was Dupixent. And the data on it was just off the charts in its its first um, publication called the, the DRI publication. So that was a New England Journal article where we showed up massive reduction in exacerbations had an opportunity because some um, of my my former connections this networking etc 
I happened to know the, the brand head at, at Sanofi, and he had, he had actually tried to recruit me. Another aspect of working for many different companies that uh, you were also patient here in Switzerland, uh, you went back to the US. So, so how do you see work and life being different or same in, in Europe and in the US? What are these maybe culture differences, what you have discovered? There's no question, at least from my perspective, that work-life balance is superior in Europe. When you're on holiday, you're on holiday. In the States, I would say that, yeah, you're on holiday, but there's so many people that still work on their, their holidays. I expected that you pick up the phone or you respond to a text your supervisor or boss sends you one. It's just a matter of fact. and Definitely does. Anything on the food side? Anything on maybe traveling? Anything on the personal side? It's tough to beat European food <laughs> and, and travel, right? It's pretty much anywhere in, in Western Europe within an hour and a half, two hours, right? Whereas the States, it's, it's monstrous, right? It'll take five hours to, for me to fly, five and a half hours to fly to, to San Francisco. Biggest difference from a life perspective is that things are just much more convenient here in the States. Everything's open 24-7. It's that, that capitalism work mindset, I guess, that we, we can never turn off. What are your tips? What are your tricks for the next generation who are aspiring to industry roles? It's interesting because, yeah, the younger generation is, is more, um, more focused on achieving a stronger work-life balance, which is, is envious. I think that's fantastic. It's, you know, people still want to, to make a, a nice, nice living, but they also want to have a, a reasonable work-life balance as well. So, for example, there are, are people on my team that are six years out of, out of college, try to have a, an environment whereby they they can better manage their 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 life as well. So we we have a flexible work scenario where whereby we only go into the office two days a week. Typically, we'll go in if we need to if we're doing executive level presentations, etc. All those other days can can work remotely from wherever they want to. They don't even have to do it at home, right? They can you know I I have some team members that that leave it at three p.m. So they don't have to be stuck in traffic and they can get home, have dinner with their kids, and then they ultimately get online and, and work later. When I send something, they don't, they don't need to respond immediately. Big insight that I, I took with me from Europe that I, I try to, to lead by example. Just recently, I had a, a commitment that I'd made to my daughter for, for school and my wife. And so there was a big fire drill going on at work and my boss needed a, a slide deck pulled together immediately and it came down to me thinking about canceling or just trusting my team to deliver it with little direction. And they were able to, to deliver it with little direction. So I, you know, I feel like it's important to, I call it walk the walk. So if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. If you're, you're saying family first, then you better, you better do it because it's, it's leadership by example. Absolutely. And uh, uh, speaking of which, it's a weekend. A big thank you for you that you came and um, 
talk to care captains about your career about copd various kind of like learnings what you had uh, in europe and in us as well it was really a pleasure having you here thank you again for sharing your insights andy hey thank you norbert wish you the best i hope you have enjoyed another episode of care captains see you next week